Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, your grace is amazing. Uh, we just thank you, Lord, that, that we can be under it, that we can be under your grace. Lord, I just ask that, uh, that you'll bless us today, that you, will, that you will allow my words to be your words, that, uh, that those whose eyes need opened and those whose ears need to hear, Lord God, that they will hear, that they will be opened. And uh, I ask in your son's holy name, in Jesus Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. All right, you guys can be seated if you like. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Mercy Hill, to all of those of you that are regulars and to all of you, those of you that are guests. Welcome, anyone that hasn't been here before. We welcome you. Um, many of you, hopefully I've got to know a little bit, so many of you know who I am, but some of you don't. So just by way of introduction, uh, my name is Brad Furkowski. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Mercy Hill, and I, I get the I get the um, opportunity and, and, the, and the blessing to get to present the Word of God to you this morning. Um, typically, we would say if you're following around along in our reading plan, you would know where we're at, but we're not doing that this year. We're going a little bit different. So we're actually working through the book of Romans. Um, so if you were here last week, you probably know where we're picking up. Um, if you don't, that's okay, because I'm going to let you know. We are actually going to start off in chapter 2 this week in the book of Romans. We actually completed uh, chapter 1 last week. Uh, Taylor, Taylor summarized that, and we will actually touch on that slightly a bit more. Um, but if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles or your electronic devices to Romans chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. So I'm going to go ahead and read that if you just want to read along with me. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's pray once more. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we, just, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, we are able to get to know you, that we are able to draw near to you in this way, that you reveal yourself in your word. Lord, I just ask again that uh, my words will be blessed, that I, I will be able to um, relay what it is that you want, want to be known of you this morning. And again, I ask it in your son's holy name. In Jesus Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. All right. So he starts off with a therefore, right? So in this chapter 2, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for him passing judgment on, on another. You condemn yourself because you, pre- you who judge practice the very same things. So I felt it was appropriate to review what that was in chapter 1. And actually, let me go back a second. I'm going to come to that. I'm sorry. Let me, let me go back. I want to do something that Taylor did last week because I do think it's important. And, and I want to um, reiterate it, that as we go through, as we work our way through the book of Romans, the, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Taylor suggested last week that possibly maybe make a, a note card or something that you can put in your Bible, or this, this can be a, a verse um, that you memorize or that you study often. And the reason that he said this is because this, this is the theme of the entire epistle. And so to stay grounded and to kind of understand where we're going and why Paul is covering some of the ground that he's covering, it is important that that verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 is ingrained in you. And so I'm going to read that just just really quick. But again, like I said, it's very important. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the gospel, for in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We must be grounded in that, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel through faith. And so the righteous shall live by faith. We're going to talk about that more. And it means that those who live by faith now on this side of eternity are counted as righteous. I'll say that again. That means that those who live by faith on this side of eternity are counted as righteous. And by faith the righteous shall be saved and live with God forever in eternity. It is by God's grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is in this gospel. So again, I encourage you, as Taylor did, that you either uh, make a note card, and this be a verse that you lean upon, so when you get to the texts that are a little more difficult, that we're working through, that you can come back to this, and this this is your grounding. So last week, as I was saying, I'm sorry, I I wanted to go back to that just for a moment. Last week, as I was saying, Taylor had touched on some of these things. We learned about the wrath of God. We learned that those who suppress the truth, that the wrath of God is set against them. And we were told that despite all the evidence around them, that these people refuse to give honor and give thanks to God, and instead they choose to worship the creature 
or the created instead of the creator. At the end of chapter 1, we're given this list. It's an extensive list. And I think sometimes when we see lists um, throughout Scripture, it's kind of easy to leaf through it, or it's kind of easy to just read through it and, and move on. But given the fact that chapter 2 tells us that because the, the, the person he's addressing here, the judge, the person that's passing judgment on others, is practicing the very same things that these people did in, in chapter 1, I felt it was important to go back and for us to look at those things that are listed. So at the very beginning it says, they were filled, and I'm at, I'm sorry, to tell you where we're at chapter 29, verse, or, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 29, excuse me. And we're told that they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil. Covetousness, or greed. Malice which is an intention or desire to harm or to do harm to someone. I'm going to kind of define these things. I, used, I obviously used the uh, Greek and, and uh, looked at different translations to see how these words were defined. I also used uh, the 2004 Oxford English Dictionary, so I want to give credit where credit is due as I'm going through these. But I just want, I just want us to be conscious of what these things are. So again, it was covetousness or greed, malice, which is an intention or desire to do harm to someone. He says they're full of envy or jealousy, that they're full of murder. And I think most of us would say, well, we don't fall into that category. But I would remind us, remind myself and remind you that Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to, hell, to the hell of fire. He says they're full of strife, which is quarrelsome. They're confrontational. They have anger that causes conflict. They're full of deceit, which are lies which deliberately cause someone to believe something that's not true. They're deceitful. So they get someone to believe something that is not a, tr not a true statement or a truth. They're full of maliciousness, again, intending to do harm. He goes on to another list. He says they're gossips. Gossips is, is usually derogatory. It's usually a person who likes to talk about others, other people's private things their private lives. They're usually unsubstantiated reports about these people, meaning there's nothing, there's nothing substantial about it, but it's a gossip. They're slanderers. They, they, give they have false malicious uh, spoken statements. They make false spoken statements damaging to a person's reputation. So they intentionally go out to damage a person's reputation by falsely speaking of them. They're haters of God. They simply hate God for whatever reason. They, they find a reason to hate him. They're insolent, which is the, what it says in, my, in the ESV, which can also be translated, they're rude and disrespectful. They're violent. They're haughty, which can mean arrogant or disdainful. Dis, disdainful full, the feeling that someone or something is unworthy of one's consideration or respect. 
They're boastful. They show excessive pride in themselves, self-satisfaction in their own achievements and their possessions. They're inventors of evil. I don't think it's difficult to look around the world or look at the world around us and see that there is evil being invented every day. They're disobedient to parents. I do want, I do want to take one sidebar here specifically with that one, only because I remember hearing a story of a young individual that was at church <clears throat> every day with their parent, and their parent was abusive to their child. And the, and the parent gave off this veneer of, within the, within the congregation, of an upstanding individual. And, um, and, this is the, and the reason why I do this sidebar is because parents, we are held to account in the way that we are to interact with our children. And there is definitive scriptures on those. And if we are failing to do that, and we are acting in a way that is ungodly toward our children, our children are not to obey us. And that's not speaking against scripture. That's not speaking against this scripture here. That is biblical. But in that, our parents are to be the ones that that bring us up in the ways of the Lord. And that is, our, that is our obligation as parents, is to bring up our children in the ways of the Lord. That is where this would come in line, right? Being disobedient to parents. It says they are foolish, that they're lacking good sense of judgment, they're unwise, they're faithless, which means they literally stand alone. They literally have no faith. They, they, don't, tr- they, they, don't, they don't have a God. They don't believe in him. Heartless, they're hard-hearted without natural affection or love. They're lacking a feeling of, or consideration. They're ruthless, which means they're unmerciful, without mercy, having or showing no compassion. And it's, he ends this, this, this part of the text where he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So that's where chapter 1 ends. And then we go into chapter 2, and it says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I thought it was important for us to gain a footing of what it was, what are these same things that this judgmental individual is practicing. He goes on in verse 2. He says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, that yet and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And verse 4 is a key verse. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In different translations, it translates his kindness to goodness. It translates his forbearance to tolerance or his patience to long-suffering. And here he's saying, do you presume, do you take advantage of God's kindness, tolerance, long-suffering? 
Why is it? Why is it that, that God would allow people to live in this way? Right? I just listed all of those different things, right? And some of those things, I would guess or I would assume we've either done in, in our life at one point in time or maybe we've done it recently. Maybe we were boastful. Maybe we gossiped or slandered. So why would God, why would God allow this? Well, we're told in his kindness, God is so good. (laughs) And his forbearance and his long-suffering, his patience with us. It's meant for one thing, to lead us to repentance. And what is repentance? It's a turning away. It's an acknowledging of our sin against a holy God. It's a confession to him and an admission that we are out of line with his standard. And yet, he's so good He's so patient that he allows us this opportunity to turn back to him. It's interesting, in Ecclesiastes, it says, because the the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to evil. That's where that advantage is being, he's being taken advantage of, right? Right? Because the the sentence against the evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. But then we come to Paul. And Paul testifying before King Agrippa in the book of Acts, he says of his ministry that he declared that they should, meaning the Christians, those who he was ministering to, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. We're going to get in a moment here to obedience. And if you remember back in chapter 1, at the beginning when he's, when he's describing the gospel and he kind of summarizes the gospel in the first paragraph, he says, Uh, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are being called to belong to Jesus Christ, not only the Romans, but us here today. And so in his ministry, he, he taught that we should repent, turn to God, and perform deeds in keeping with, with our repentance. Peter echoed this sentiment in 2 Peter 3.9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In the book of Revelation, when John is writing to the church in Ephesus, Christ tells him to tell the church to remember from where you have fallen and repent. And do the works that you did at first. 
And then he says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand, meaning the church from its place, unless you repent. Part of our obedience to faith that we are called to is repentance. We cannot mistake in God's kindness and tolerance as a sign of approval. He goes on in, in our section, he says, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impotent, impotent I'm probably not pronouncing it <laughs> uh, correctly, unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's, he's speaking to the future, right? He's speaking to the day of wrath. When, when Christ returns, that if we're not repenting, that if we're not turning away from the sins, that we are storing up wrath on the day when Christ returns and righteous judgment will take place. It is a righteous judgment. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be judgment by works. Or judgment for works. I'm sorry. Excuse my language. We are not justified. There's a difference between being justified... I hate to even use the phrase, being justified by works and being judged by works. We will not be justified by our works. We will be judged by them. But we are justified by Christ, by faith, through gra- by, faith by grace. Um, I had a hard time trying to verbalize how I would explain this, so I'm going to lean on one of the giants of the faith, John Stott, because I feel like he explained it fairly well. He says, uh, Some Christians, however, are immediately up in arms, Has the apostle taken leave of his senses? Does he begin by declaring that salvation is by faith alone and then destroy his own gospel by saying that it is by good works after all? No. Paul is not contradicting himself. What he is affirming is that although justification is indeed by faith, judgment will be according to works. The reason for this is not hard to find. It is that the day of judgment will be a public occasion. Its purpose will be less to determine God's judgment than to announce it and to vindicate it. The divine judgment, which is a process of sifting and separating, is going on secretly all the time as people range themselves for or against Christ. But on the last day, its result will be made public. The day of God's wrath will also be the time when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Such a public occasion on which a public verdict will be given and a public sentence passed will require public and verifiable evidence to support them. And the only public evidence... Available will be our works, what we have done and have been seen to do. The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. That's a great statement, and I'm going to repeat it. The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. 
The apostles Paul and James both teach this same truth, that authentic saving faith invariably issues in good works. And then if it does not, it is bogus, even dead. I by my works will show you my faith, wrote James. Faith works through love, echoed Paul. So hear me, I am not teaching (laughs) that we are justified by our works because we are not. We are justified in Christ. But we will be judged by our works because our works are a reflection of Christ's work within us. He goes on, he, he continues to, to hit at that point, right? He says, uh, well-doing, seek for glory and honor immortality. Self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. And glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. You're probably, you, you may not, you may be, but sometimes you're probably going to wonder why does he keep on bouncing back and forth and, and, and making a definitive statement on the Jew and the Greek, right? And I, and I believe Mark might have hit on this um, when he preached. Um, I don't know if, I can't remember if Taylor had said anything on it. Um, you we're going to see a lot. So obviously it was a mixed congregation that he was writing to, right? There were, there were, Greek, there were Jews, there were non-Jews that he refers to as Greeks here. That would, that would have been us. We would have kind of fallen into that category. Um, also known as Gentiles. You'll hear that, that word used throughout Scripture, that we would have been the Gentiles. Um, the reason is, is because you would have had, people knew who Paul was. People knew Paul was the Jew of Jews. He, he goes on and he proclaims this. You, you'll see this in and other scriptures, and, and he, he was persecuting the church, in fact. He was such a, a zealot for the Jewish faith. So, he, so he, there would have been Jews questioning, how can he be saying that we and the, the Greeks, we and the uh, Gentiles are all on the same, same level? And, and Paul's going to address this topic back and forth, right? It interweaves throughout this, throughout this epistle, throughout this letter. You're going to see this back and forth language addressing the Jew and the Greek, but ultimately addressing all of us. And that's why it says in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. It says, for all who have sinned without the law, which would be the Gentiles, because we were not given the law. The Jews were given the law. So for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law, which would be the Jews, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but hear this, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The day of wrath that we just talked about. 
that Stott talked about. God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So now I guess the question is, can anyone, can any one of us perfectly adhere to the law? Can any one of us avoid all manner of righteousness apart from Christ? I'm going to flash forward a little bit here. In Romans 3, I know I'm kind of heavy on Scripture today. Romans 3, um, verses 20 through 25. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It goes back to faith. And this is why I said it's so important. That, and, and Taylor echoed this, and I think we all uh, believe this, that it's so important to lean on that section in chapter 1 that, that hammers home that we will live by faith. Because the only reason we can be categorized as righteous now is because we have faith in Christ. And the only reason we will have eternal life after this is because we have faith in Christ. I wanted to list all of those sins at the beginning because I wanted you to, you to think to yourself, well, yeah, I, I, might, I might have done one of those before. Or uh, I might have been guilty of that the other day. I think I, think I know that I do this. Where I'll, be, I'll start to do, I'll do something or I'll interact with somebody and I catch myself and I'm like, woo, that wasn't very Christ-like. It wasn't reflective of him. Thank God for his mercy and grace. Amazing grace, right? And so what should that lead me to do? Repent. If you catch yourself, it's nice because you can go to him right then, right? And you say, Lord God, help me. Help me in this situation. Forgive me for that. Show me how to turn. Show me how to be different. Right? But he's patient, and he's long-suffering, and he adores with us. We are a new creation. And so I look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In Christ. Are you... <laughs> We're in Christ. If you have put your faith in him, you are in Christ. I heard someone the other day, they were talking about the way that Christians are described. And he went on and he said, you know, it's interesting that we refer to ourselves as Christians because really, within the Bible, we really only refer to that once. And it's, and it's in a, I think he called it a pejorative, but it's kind of like in a negative light almost. 
But what we are referred to most often and what the original church would have seen themselves as is in Christ. And so he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has re- was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Apart from Christ, we are unrighteous. With him, we are righteous. kind of start wrapping up here. When I first read this, and I read about this person passing judgment, but doing the same thing, I immediately thought of King David, which probably sounds a little bit odd, but follow me. So in 2 Samuel, we hear about King David's affair with Bathsheba. And her, her former husband was Uriah. And we are told when the wife of Uriah heard that, so let me just kind of give you a backstory. So Uriah is, is a soldier in the military. He's off to battle on behalf of David, right? And while he's off battling, David sees Bathsheba bathing. He lusts for her and takes her. And they have relations. I'll just put it that way. And she conceives a child. And so in in an attempt to cover all this up, when Uriah is home, David tries to get him to spend time with his wife. And Uriah refused because he said it it was a time of war and that's what he was supposed to be doing. Anyways, long story short, what David ends up doing is he ends up sending Uriah to the front of the battle lines to be killed because he knew that he would not be able to withstand the battle. So I pick up in, in 2 Samuel uh, eleven twenty six. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet. And Nathan came to him, and this is what he said. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock 
or her to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger, as he's hearing this story, David's hearing this story from the prophet Nathan. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. I don't know how, if you were able to follow along with me throughout that story. But Nathan used this story to reveal to David the sin that he had committed with Bathsheba. We are told in Acts that God called David a man after his own heart. How could that be? If he committed such a heinous act. I now refer, now refer you to Psalm 51. And as I said before, repentance, we should live by a life of repentance. Did I say 54? I meant 51. I'm sorry. Did I say 51? Psalm 51? Okay. If you, have, if you have your Bibles with you, I would ask for you to turn to this because I, th- I believe we can take something away from this and we should. God's long-suffering, his, his, his patience with us, he had long-suffering, he had patience with David. And Psalm 51, I feel like, is his psalm of repentance. And it can hit on many areas that I think can resonate with us. And this is what, this is what David says in this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That sounds familiar, right? According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. For those of you wondering what hyssop is, it was, they used it in rituals of um, sacrifice. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips 
and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I hope that resonates. I hope that resonates with you all today. Nate, you can come on up. I think in our walk, I don't, I don't want to say that we get bored or I think sometimes that long suffering that God offers, we sometimes lose the joy in our salvation. And I don't, I, when I was reading this, when I was reading this from David and his, his asking the Lord to forgive him and, and to wash him of it, I think the verse that stuck out to me the most was verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In order for us to be able to have the faith and do the works that are driven by said faith, we must have joy in our salvation. We gotta, we gotta turn to him for that joy. I just encourage you if, to remember <laughs> you're in Christ. You're in Christ. You're redeemed. You're righteous before a holy God because of his son and what he did for us. Remember that. Remember that he is long-suffering. He is patient. He is kind. He is so good. So, so good. If you find yourself in those places of darkness at times, it's, it's time to repent. And it's time to turn back to him. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, Lord. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I just, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for a reminder of who you are and who we are in you. That you welcome us in with open arms, Lord God. That it is a free gift. That you love us. You sent your son for us. Lord God, that we can, we can be with you, that we are in you, that we are in Christ. Lord, that what everyone that will leave here today will know that, that it will resonate within them, that they are justified by Christ and Christ alone. They are justified by their faith and their faith alone in him. And Lord, when we stray, that we will just come running to you, unafraid, knowing that you will welcome us back with open arms, that we can confess what we've done and that, that you will allow us to turn and that you will guide us in that turning. Lord, bless each and every one here today. Uh, protect them, protect us on our way home. It's, it's 
snowed quite a bit since we've been in here, Lord. Give us safe travels home. And Lord, just allow us to continue to draw near to you and continue to draw near to us as you promised. And I ask it in your son's holy name. In Jesus Christ's holy name, I pray. Amen.